Equalizer podcast match day six of the NWSL Challenge Cup. The early game is in the books. O.L. Reign, first win for Fareed Ben City, first win as O.L. Reign, first goal of the tournament. They defeat Utah Royals FC 1-0 on a stoppage time goal from Bethany Balser. I'm Dan Lalletta, joined by Rachel Krigger for a review of Reign and Royals. And Rachel, about 70 minutes into this game, I was wondering if you were going to tell me you couldn't record with me because there was nothing to talk about. <laughs> the game kind of got... Uh, changed up. Balser came in and was great. Momiki came in and was great. And they combined on the goal. And the rain, I guess, finally decided after like 250 minutes that they would join the tournament. Yeah, uh, that's that's a probably a nicer way to put it than I probably would. Um, you know, we we had talked I think before that there has just been so much change with OL Rain, not even just managerial wise, but also like with their roster and everything. They got so many players back from injury and those personalities would have to gel together pretty quick on the pitch. But, you know, it was good to see them get a win. Their first one is this new kind of rebranded club. Uh, I didn't think it would come against Utah just because of how good Utah has been in the tournament so far, uh, especially with Vero Boquette and Amy Rodriguez just picking up where they left off, not really missing a beat. But I mean, the substitutions, like you said, Dan, they really made the difference in the entire game with Momiki and, and Bethany Balser. And, you know, when Bethany Balser came in, she just was like, I w- I'm intrigued to see what kind of instruction Fareed Bensidi or any of the assistant coaches gave her because she just came in and just let it rip as soon as she, she got on the pitch. She did. And I always said last year watching her, because remember at the beginning of last year, literally Nobody knew who she was. She was off the mm-hmm. street out of NAIA. And it was like, all right, well, this is the last player on the roster. And then she was rookie of the year. Great story. But I always said she had a nose for the ball. Like where when there was a loose ball, she figured out where it was going. And she figured out how to get there. And that's exactly the way she played in this one. Because Barnhart had to make two saves. One of them, I wasn't sure if it was going in or not, but it was close enough. And uh, it was a fantastic performance by Balser. And that is, I mean, she is a player. As long as she is in this league, the Vlatko, not that Vlatko Andonovsky's legacy will go away anytime soon, but the fact that he discovered her out of the NAIA and made her into, uh, or, you know, helped make her into the player that she is is just extraordinary. And I thought Momiki was probably the best rain player in the first two games and got a little bit more space. And if you look at the, the cross was great on the winner, but the, there wasn't a Royals defender anywhere near there. I wonder if maybe if Harrington had to do all over again, if he would have dropped some more defenders back uh, and, and try to kind of stem the tide because the rain were in charge of that game probably for the last 15 minutes. And that's the first time you can say that this entire tournament. Yeah, and I think it's, you know, the subs made the difference, absolutely. But I think that maybe it was Utah getting tired. I don't know what exactly the, the reason was. Um, I was... I was intrigued to see Nicole Barnhart come into the game because I thought that Abby Smith had done well in the last couple of games, you know, albeit she did give up three goals to the Houston dash in that first one. But I think that she has been pretty solid throughout the tournament, but I also understand that it's the group stage and, and you're resting your players. But I think just like you said, those last 15, 20 minutes that rain FC just completely dominated the game. And I think that, they're tinkering with how they're doing their midfield and their and their 
front three because they still had the front three, but this time you had to start Shirley Cruz being like the only person in that in her number ten role and in a like attacking midfielder role, if you will. Um, so I think they're just still trying to figure how they're gonna uh, line up against whoever they're playing in the in the knockout round and see what formation fits them well because in the last couple games we've been seeing. Allie Long and Shirley Cruz partnering up in that offensive midfield role. And I hate to say it, but, you know, did the midfield look better with Danny Weatherholt than it did with Allie Long? Or is that just a case of the rain played a whole lot better in this game? Because even before they picked it up, I thought they were at least better than they were, especially in that in that last game against the Dash. That that may be the worst performance of the tournament, although that might also go to uh, this guy blue that same day. But uh, and I don't know if it was weather hold over long, but the midfield, I thought, certainly looked better today than it did in the two games with Allie Long in there. I think the connection between Danny Weatherholt and the front three was definitely better than what Allie Long has been when Allie Long has been in the games. And I also think that Danny Weatherholt and Shirley Cruz connected a lot better. I liked uh, some of the passes between Shirley Cruz and Jasmine Spencer, although they couldn't really get anything on frame. Uh, for the first half that she was in. But I think that it did look better with Danny Weatherholt. I'm just, I don't know if maybe it was a shift in the formation too. I was also um, at halftime kind of pondering that I thought Steph Cox was the best player on, on the rain. And I think that's really cool because, you know, Steph Cox has been a fantastic player for a really long time. And I actually thought, when she retired from the rain after 2015, that that was an underrated reason why the rain weren't as good in the in the years after that. But how do you let an outside back who has played like eight games in four years or four and a half years be your best player? You know, I mean, they're you know they're too good to play the way they had been playing. So great job by Steph Cox. But you know, where are the other players on this roster? And I keep seeing, you know, in the old Twitterverse whatever you want to call it by, well, they don't have Rapino and they don't have Huerta and they don't have, you know, Fishlock. All right, that's fine. Those are all players that could make a difference, but you've got to look at the players they have out there and the players they have out there haven't been good enough so far until again, those last 15 minutes. So let's see, maybe they'll pick it up going forward. Maybe they won't. We'll have to see. I think the argument for Rapino is like, it's something that I haven't really tried to rely on because Rapino only played six games for the rain last year Completely and they agree. still made uh, they made the playoffs and they still did it also with a pretty much half injured team like they had a starting 11 that was injured and on the injury report. Um, and I think I think the argument for Sofia Huerta is valid. But at the same time, we don't know what type of player she's going to look like in this rain system with Fareed Ben Sidi or with you know, the, this front three formation and, and whatnot. She played in a completely different role. We don't even know what role she's going to play because she can jump from attack to forward and, and to defense. So it's kind of, you know, the argument is valid because of how good of a player she is in the history that she has in the league. But at the same time, she could be a completely different player with uh, with the rain. And the same goes for Jess Fishlock coming back from an ACL. Injury. You never know what type of player a person is going to be when they come back from an injury of that caliber. And I actually kind of think that one of the things with the rain is that they may actually have too many players because 
you know, I'm all for having a deep roster and mixing and matching the roles and whatnot, but it seems like they have too many players to assign specific roles. And we've even without all the people we just talked about, it seems like they've got players mixing and matching a little bit. You know, McNabb went from the midfield to the back line and Cox went to the other side. And, uh, you know, you just don't always know who's going to be where. Taylor Smith came in and played a little bit more of an attacking role. And I thought actually did a decent job. And considering the fact that she's been exposed a lot, getting forward too much and having her, you know, her outside back position, you know, too much space in behind. Maybe that's a good thing. And I'm talking about going back two years ago to when she was in Washington. So uh, maybe they have too many players. And also maybe the short format doesn't suit them well because they need, you know, maybe they were going to always need four or five games to figure out who plays where and, and who fits best. Mm-hmm. I couldn't you know, agree more. It's also interesting. We don't know, are they training not knowing whether Fishlock and Huerta will be in these games or have they known all along that they probably wouldn't be out there for a while. Because I think that makes a difference. It's kind of like Kelly O'Hara as a winger in the 3-5-2 for the Royals. I mean, that's a that's a huge difference maker for them if she's out there or not. So are they training like they think she's going to be there or are they training like they know she's not going to be there? Yeah, I don't know if anything has been on the record, but you know, we keep hearing game after game after game well, maybe Sofia Huerta will come next game. Maybe next yeah. game will be the time that she makes her OL Reign debut. And it's, you know, you don't want to rush an injury. The rushing, especially, too, for Jess Fishlock, you never want to rush a return back from an ACL. But for both of those players, I mean, yes, they are key players and they have amazing talents and could certainly very well be game changers. But at the same time, you don't want to rush that and just saying, well, maybe next game will be the time that they make their first appearance in, in their debut of 2020. It's just I don't know. I think it puts unnecessary pressure on the rain to, to speed it up. Yeah, and Huerta has been one of the more durable players in this league through the year. Same with Becky Sauerbrunn, who's out for the tournament now with the hip injury. Uh, and you don't like to see durable players come down with nagging injuries. Um, I, I don't want to go through this whole thing without talking too much about the Royals, but I do know you wanted to mention the rain goalkeeper situation. Yeah, sorry. I um, Yeah, I, I'm intrigued to see if there's going to be a goalkeeper battle in in uh with the rain because you know michelle beta she was kind of that clear-cut number one last year she had that goalkeeper battle with lydia williams who's now with arsenal and she kind of came out of that as like the victor almost and then she goes down with an achilles injury lydia williams comes in goes down with her injury and then they bring in uh casey murphy and now it's like What's going to happen now? Because she had a great game. She made a ton of really good saves. Uh, Michelle Betos, that is. And Casey Murphy also had a good couple games in that, making some good saves. So I'm intrigued to see if Fareed Benstidi goes with the hot hand, if you will. Um, and in that case, I think it would be Michelle Betos for getting that clean sheet. You know, I felt like her first touch was a little nervous. It was a cross that came in, and it was an easy catch, in my opinion. And she tapped it over for a corner. But then... A little while later, she came out and challenged Amy Rodriguez outside the 18 and knocked it away, which is always a good sign when you have a player coming back. And as you know, we talk all about the ACL injuries, I think coming back from an Achilles rupture is probably worse than an ACL, not speaking from experience on either front, but I think it's a little bit of a more arduous recovery. 
And I think it, I don't know, it just feels like it's a little bit more difficult to get back into, you know, running out there and challenging people. But I am a huge Michelle Beto's fan. I remember her first seeing her play in 2012 with the New York Fury and WPSL Elite when she was coached by Paul Riley. Huge Michelle Beto's fan. I think, I, you know, everybody you talk to says that she is the ideal teammate. She was apparently last year when possible sitting behind Casey Murphy during games while she was rehabbing this ruptured Achilles. And so many players, you know, she's from the Northeast. So many players, when that happens, would go home and rehab at home. She was sitting behind Casey Murphy to try to help, you know, to communicate with Murphy, kind of like trying to see what she saw on the field. Huge Michelle Beto's fan. That's it. I think Casey Murphy is a far superior keeper and probably headed for, at the very least, a shot with the national team at some point. And so I would love to see Beto's hang around this league and continue to get minutes but I think Murphy is very much the future. Kind of like as we can transition to Utah, you know, the Smith-Barnhart thing. Barnhart's the oldest player in this tournament. So if some point she will actually retire, even though we've heard those rumors for like five years in a row and it never <laughs> happened. But you got, you know, if you have Abby Smith, you can't go another whole year without seeing what you have with Abby Smith. So I w- I'm going to go out on a limb and say Smith's going to get the knockout game. I think so too. I just think that she's a more agile and better option than Nicole Barnhart and maybe that might be age but um I think that Abby Smith is I don't know if superior is the right word as you used for Casey Murphy but I think that she is definitely in a better position to be the starting goalkeeper and I think Craig Harrington is going to look at her as maybe not the face of the franchise but the face of the goalkeeping position and the future of the goalkeeping position in Utah. Now, at the same time, we've seen plenty of male keepers play very effectively at very high levels into their 40s. And I won't say that we haven't seen that or we haven't seen it on the women's side, but I think it's because we just haven't gotten anybody who has stuck around long enough to have a chance to do it. So maybe Barnhart is the first one. Maybe Barnhart in three years when she's 41 is still a top two or three goalkeeper in the league. I would love to see it if it happened. But I also understand that you've got to get the young keeper worked in and see what you've got there. One or two other points on the Royals. I thought that uh, the rain did a pretty good job on uh, Boquette, who was okay in the game, but not great. And I think Kate Delfava, who's been in the back, has been quietly um, one of the brighter spots in this tournament in terms of someone that we didn't really know a whole lot about. We probably still don't know a whole lot about, but I think she's been quietly solid. Not spectacular, but solid. Yeah, and I think it's all just about the game experience that she's getting, the the whole kind of shtick for the group stage matches is to get these younger players some minutes. I mean, look at, you know, not to go too off topic, but look at what Chicago's doing with some of their younger players. Um, and, you know, the rest of the teams in the league are kind of following suit. And of course you want to win and you want your seeding chances to be better. But at the same time, these are kind of the exhibition games, if you will, um, before the real competition gets underway. So getting some players, minutes against you know quality opponents is is always a good thing and these this young this tournament has become kind of like a holy grail for young players to get those moments so that said do you rest rodriguez and boquette in the next uh group game and and save them up for and have them on a week plus rest for the knockout round that hopes to sneak into the semis 
Yeah, I think you rest them, or if anything, you you throw them in and around the 65th, 70th minute for just, you know, to get some running going. But I think resting them is probably an ideal situation. All right, that's going to wrap it up for segment one. But before we go, I just want to thank Rachel for being with me on the podcast for segment one. Remember, we do segment one before we have watched and get the results of segment two. But I also want to acknowledge uh, that there are several people keeping very late hours to get the podcast out every match day, well past midnight on the East Coast, where we all happen to live. And Rachel has been out doing social media and get tracking, running down photos and whatnot. So uh, thank you very much for that contribution as well. Thanks, Dan. And uh, John Haller and I will be back to recap Dash and Sky Blue. You are listening to the Equalizer podcast. Back on the Equalizer podcast, no team will go through the NWSL Challenge Cup without a goal. Sky Blue wins the nightcap 2-0 over the Houston Dash. And before we get into a breakdown of that, please check us out on the web at EqualizerSoccer.com or for premium content, EqualizerSoccer.com slash subscribe. And also, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please rate and review the Equalizer podcast today. Dan Lawletta back with John Halloran joining me. Uh, just one uh, quick note. Um, I ended the first segment praising Rachel Krigger for her work late at night doing social and helping to get the podcast squared away. Well, it turns out Rachel is off tonight. So um, still, we love Rachel. She does a great job. But uh, if, you, if you don't like our social tonight, can't blame Rachel. We're a deep team, though. So uh, we're coming at you with another podcast on match day six. And, uh, John, I, I feel like maybe this Sky Blue performance was the first example of a team really, um, you know, making some adjustments and turning around their narrative at this tournament because they were horrendous in their last game. And they were a completely different team, certainly in the first half hour tonight. I would agree. It was kind of the theme of the day, right? With the early game and, and the rain kind of doing the same thing in the last 20 minutes of their game, kind of turning around their narrative. Yeah, I didn't. I, I wasn't as convinced by the rain because they spent about 70 minutes flying right. through that game. And, you know, maybe we're lucky that they caught Utah not playing as well as they had. Uh, but, yeah, the rain got off. They get the win. There's now, like, more than half the leagues on four points. But I thought Sky Blue just from the beginning, better ball movement, better movement off the ball. Um, you know, they broke through the dashes press pretty well. You know, it wasn't a, a high, hard press, but it was like the half press we talked about, which the rain, ironically enough, couldn't get out of at all. And, uh, you know, Jennifer Cujo, who's a player that most of us hadn't heard of a couple of weeks ago, very, very solid midfield. Well, it's yeah, it's funny you mentioned the press, too, because we know that um, that Houston's press worked really effectively in their first game as well. And it didn't really seem to have much of an effect on Sky Blue at all tonight. And I also think that Sky Blue's entire starting front line had strong performances. There was a beautiful run and goal for Monaghan. Uh, obviously, Anamano set her up perfectly with that through ball and then. Um, Kawasumi with a beautiful chip. I mean, all three of them had a big impact. And I saw on Twitter, somebody had shared that Anumanu had an 86% possession rate, which uh, 
is incredible if that's accurate because for a center forward that's a, that's an off the chart number. Yeah, I feel like she's a player that's gotten lost in the shuffle. She was a first round pick, remember, by the Breakers in 2017, a year there, and then the Breakers folded, and she's been kind of bouncing around. She scored that goal for the Rain last year, the forced extra time in the semifinal. But maybe if she can get a home and actually stick with a team and and get a firm role, then maybe you know she'll be looked at more as like the first round pick other than a player that just is kind of floating around the league because I thought I think she's been pretty decent in all the games but you know when everybody plays better then it makes everybody look better and that sort of happened tonight and they got Dorsey back too which I didn't really notice her a lot but I just think her being there kind of balanced out the way they built their attack out of the back well it's interesting too because the the one thing that uh, you know at least I've seen a lot of criticism of Sky Blue is playing Midge Purse in the back and tonight, of, of all nights, after two games of people criticizing that decision, they didn't need her up front because everybody they had up there had a really strong game. True. Yeah, and, you know, um, I think we had been – I think we recorded before her comments came out after the last game. Um, and then she was on, I guess, it was it halftime of the early game, of the, uh, the, uh, the rain game on Wednesday. But, I mean, basically she is very upfront. I want to be an outside back, and I want to get called into the national team. So that's where I want to play. And, uh, you know, I'm not crazy about players being able to dictate that, though I understand that the coach wants to have that, you know, the coach is part of what the coach does at the club level is, hey, how can I make your career better? And if that's where you got to play to get on the national team. Uh, But you're right. When you score goals, it's not as egregious. I still think Purse is better off up front. But, hey, you know, they got the job done in this one. And Dorsey, too, had a really big tackle. I think it was about five minutes into the second half because I thought Houston controlled or at least looked like they might be able to get one back in that first 15 yeah, minutes too. of the second half. And there was one in particular where Mewis had won it, started a counter, found Prince on the far side, and Dorsey stuck her um, and took the ball away. Uh, or knocked it away, and that was uh, probably Houston's best chance or one of their better chances, and so Dorsey was a big part of that as well. And I didn't think Houston was that bad. You know, I thought Daly still had a fairly strong game, and I really like how Daly's game has evolved over the years. Um, Mewis was maybe a little bit quieter, but I, I felt like the first 10 to 12 minutes of this game the dash maybe had the better of the possession and maybe the way they played a little bit overconfident. I don't want to say taking the game for granted, but you know, they were doing back heels and trying to do all this fancy stuff to get players into space. And yeah, I just have to wonder if once sky blue started playing well, that there was a sense of like, whoa, we didn't prepare for this team to actually be able to string passes together and have to figure out how to beat it. It's hard when you play a full press, too, and they haven't been rotating their roster a ton, which is surprising to me. I don't think a lot of teams have have been playing close to their first 11 for most of these games. There haven't. I, I know Chicago had that one game where they did a complete um, turnaround, but other teams seem to kind of selectively be rotating their roster a couple of players at a time and kind of keeping their core together. So you do kind of wonder... If Houston playing a high press, playing three games in a relatively short time span, if maybe their legs are a little bit tired right now. 
Yeah, we were talking earlier on one of the other segments about whether the Courage will bring their A team or whether they'll do a complete rest for the final preliminary round game. And now they've clinched the number one seed for whatever that's going to be worth. They'll, you know, they won't be able to go into the knockout round saying, well, if we had done X, Y, Z, because they're in that spot, you know, I mean, they might get Chicago or Portland in in the eight seed, who knows? But I think that's an interesting point because I was expect. remember we thought Daly was hurt after the first game and she right. wound up on the injury report, but she's been fantastic. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm surprised at how, little certain teams have changed things over you know the rain have changed a lot but i think that's partly because ben stiddy's still trying to figure out his best team so i think that's a good call and i you know i think the dash would be better served at this point resting muis and daly in the in the next game unless clarkson is just so disappointed by their performance that he feels like he has to play them to get the ship right because if they're really here to win uh, they've got to win three times after they get through the next match. And, you know, who knows where they end up seating wise. But I I think they've, they'd be better off resting on this weekend. Yeah, I've been surprised, like I said, that, that so many teams have been playing it that way because you're really in a consequence-free environment here in this group stage. Yeah. Yes, everybody says, you know, you don't want to end up being number eight and playing North Carolina which I understand why people say that. I agree with that, though. Well, it depends. I think there's two ways to look at it. Number one, if you're going to win this thing, you're probably going to have to beat North Carolina. But the uh, the flip side is maybe you want to be on the other side of the bracket and hope somebody else does it for you because the the knockout games, as we understand them, go straight to penalties after 90 minutes. That's correct. So maybe you can sneak an early goal on them, only give them one back, you know, make it 1-1 and and drag them into penalties. So maybe – the hope is you finish. And I heard somebody say this, it it might've been Mike Watts, but somebody had said, you want to finish. What did he say? A two, three, Uh, six six or seven. seven. He said that I think earlier today, just to get on the other side of the bracket. And there's some truth to that, uh, to, to avoiding them because after North Carolina, I do think there's a pretty big gap. I think after them, you're really looking at just about anybody probably. Yeah, I mean, maybe the spirit could be a solid second. Right. But, yeah, I don't think there's a clear second choice here. And I think we're still probably caught up on the Thorns and the Red Stars. And um, I know we've been talking off air about, you know, how there's this narrative that they've been desperate and whatnot, and they're really not. Because, like you said, it's a consequence-free environment. But I also think they both have things to prove to – tell us that they're still the teams that we have become accustomed to in recent times. And we still don't know how these teams are going to look against teams outside of their group. I know they're not technically staged that way, but we've seen the same four teams playing against one another in a round robin thus far. So it's completely possible and probably fairly likely that the Utah rain Houston sky blue group is just significantly weaker than the other group. Yeah, I think that's, that's quite fair. I do think as far as the eighth seed is concerned, if I really think I can win this tournament, and I know every coach is going to tell you they can win, but if I really think I can win, I'd rather get the courage in the quarterfinals. Cause I think they're going to be harder to beat as they go on. If I am a team like the Royals, then I want to avoid them because deep down, I don't think anyone believes the Royals can win. But if you can squeak out one knockout win, which would be the first one in the history of the club, 
then I think you're I think if they get to the semis, they're essentially playing with house money. I don't want to say they have nothing to lose because you always have something to lose, but that's my opinion. I think if you are like the thorns and you still think you can win, then fine. Give me the courage whenever. I got to tell you, the one team from the the four teams that we saw today that I most want to see against the courage is Utah because and and I had a piece uh, on the site about this uh, earlier in the week, but teams have to try something different against the courage. And I think Washington and Chicago did that to an extent, but Utah playing a three back will present something different. And so just anything different, I think is fun to watch at this point against North Carolina, somebody trying to take a risk to, you know, take some sort of tactical gamble. And because Utah is doing something different than everybody else, everybody else is more or less playing some variation of a 4-3-3. Um, so Utah's, I think, an interesting matchup for the Courage, if and when we see that. Yeah, that's fair. And I don't know if there's enough personnel left or coaching staff, but they were the team that beat them two years ago. And I think drew the other two games, but they played them real tough that 2018 season. So, you know, again, I don't know if, if it's worth really making a comparison, but you know, rain uh, beat the Royals earlier on Wednesday and the rain have been the team that have, you know, gotten the Royals in all kinds of trouble over the last couple of years, but let's not get too far from, uh, from the sky blue dash game. Um, the Jane Campbell play coming out of yeah. the box. You got to get that ball farther down. down yeah, the field well, there. That's the thing with both, both of Sky Blue's goals. And I don't want to take anything away from them because Kawasumi hit a beautiful chip and Anumanu had a great ball to Monahan, who then rounded Campbell to put right. that ball in. So I'm not taking anything away from that. And Mewis but, was sliding in on Monahan too. That she was, that was not an open pass. But that was not a free the, pass. But there were major mistakes on Houston's part, on both of those goals. So on the Kawasumi one, as you just mentioned, Campbell obviously did not clear that well at all. And on the one before that, and and I shared, and then I, I saw you commented too, a, a screenshot on Houston's shape on that first goal. It is about as bad as it gets. Prysak is seven to 10 yards behind Naughton and Oyster. Oyster has kind of shaded to the left and then completely not noticed that Monaghan has made that run off her back shoulder. Nobody stepping to the ball. It's just kind of a comedy of errors. And the screenshot of that shape is really uh, like 101 of what you don't want to look like defensively on uh, Sky Blue's first goal. And, and screenshots can be a little cruel at times, but it right. almost looks like a meeting on the pitcher's mound where there's just a bunch of dash players just standing there waiting for something to happen. Yeah, it's not great. And, and again, Anumanu is coming across the face of the center backs. I watched this about 10 times and slowed it down frame by frame to figure exactly how they got twisted so far out of shape. And what what's happening there is as Anumanu is carrying the ball across Oyster and towards Naughton, Oyster starts to drift and Naughton is starting to step. But because Oyster is facing the center of the pitch, she just doesn't even see Monahan, and Monahan makes this bursting run off Oyster's back shoulder, uh, which she clearly does not see at all. And so the shape 
is poor for this, you know, half to a full second at the exact same moment that Monahan has perfectly timed her run and then Anumanu hits the pass perfectly. So it, there's a lot of things going on in there if you kind of take it piece by piece. And that really has been the Dash's issue over time. I mean, they've never maybe had a prolific score. They had Ojai that half a year and Carly Lloyd for a couple of years, but they've never been able to hold it together in the back in front of Jane Campbell. And I, I kind of feel I, I'm on the Jane Campbell is not necessarily the next starting keeper for the national team. But I also feel like maybe she hasn't gotten a fair shake in terms of proving how good she can be because she's never played behind a very good back line. I do think Oyster and Naughton is their best center back combination they've ever had. Yep. But I mean, you nailed it right there. Also when the keeper in on the other play, you know, if you come out and she's, like 20 yards out, you know, you've got to either get that far enough downfield or out to the touchline. Yeah. You can't risk that scenario. By the way, there's a goal from the 2011 World Cup. Um, I think Meg Linehan retweeted it. It's eerily similar that Kawasumi scored. It's like the same exact play in the same exact positions. But anyway, if, if your keeper's in that spot and there's that, you know, it's one thing if there's a ball over the top and the keeper comes out, but and I haven't gone back and watched it, but you've got a question. Why is the keeper even out that high when there's that many players around? Because that has to mean something else broke down. No, it. Well, the thing is with keepers is that it, it's kind of like defenders in that they make one mistake and the ball's in the back of the net. And that's the one you're remembering versus, you know, the forward who can miss five shots True. and then puts one in. And is the hero of the game because, you know, we saw Alyssa Nair make a major, major error earlier in the tournament, too. So they happen. And when they happen, the keepers look really bad and everybody sees it. So she made a mistake and she got burned for it. I will be away until late Sunday when we resume. This is the uh, middling time where the teams catch up after remember Orlando dropped out and we had the opening games and then a few days off. So now everybody's on equal footing. Um, again, I don't, we, I don't want to go into the scenarios for the other games because I have no idea what they even are. Courage or the number one seed, everything else up for grabs, but anything that you think, anything you're looking for in, in the team's final preliminary matches before they head into the knockout phase, any team, any player, anything, um, you know, and again, I, I'm, I know I'm kind of the Chicago person, but I, I, I would like to see what they do in their last game. If they go back into a heavy rotation and, and wait for the group stage and just say, we're going to, or wait for the knockout stage and just say, we're going to play whoever we get, or if they really try to put their best 11 out there and win a game, because, uh, I think, I think I'm correct in saying Portland and Chicago are the two teams that haven't won yet. Yep. And Portland, I if I'm a Portland fan, obviously there's been a lot of change, and obviously they've had now what three major injuries: Smith, Sauerbrunn, and in French, yeah. Uh, and and then Tobin's not playing, so now you've got four players out. I'm not as worried because of how many players they're missing, plus the fact that it appears Lindsey Horan can just decide to take over a game right. whenever she wants. So if I'm a Portland fan, I'm not totally freaked out because I know that my team can still step up and win. If I'm a Chicago fan, I might be a little bit worried. I know it's only two games and I know they're still tinkering around and trying to figure out how they're going to play without Kerr. And I know they were playing Washington and 
Portland and North Carolina. So obviously playing very good teams. Um, but they're a team that I think, and again, I've, you, you know, that I'm the one who stepped up right away when people started saying these are must wins or they're desperate. That's, that's as Paul Riley would say, poppycock. Uh, <laughs> I do think Chicago needs to go out there and try to get a little bit of momentum going, try to score a couple of goals so that they just internally have a little bit of confidence heading in uh, to the knockout stage. How about this? If Chicago wins on Sunday night, then the Thorns wake up the next day as the only team without a win, playing their rivals, the Reign, who can then make them the only team not to win in the preliminary stage. And then they would have to beat North Carolina in the quarterfinals to avoid going home winless. Yeah. So that's an interesting twist right there. But I think the Thorns have played okay. I don't think the, you know, they don't have a win, but I don't think they have played poorly at all. Yeah. And I don't really think Chicago's played poorly either. And they've played good teams, but it it would worry me a little bit if you're going into your fourth game and you've only scored one goal and you haven't really created a ton of chances. And the goal you scored wasn't, really a chance created. I mean, obviously it was because you scored, but that was not a goal scorer's goal. Yeah. And the one thing I would be encouraged, the flip side of this is that I did think against North Carolina that there were glimpses of that. You could see the front three combine. There were a couple of times that uh, Nagasato put Watt in or Watt put Hill in. And I think there are some moments there which they can build off of especially if they do end up starting McCaskill, who I do think should be in their first 11. So if they're playing with a front line of McCaskill, Nagasato, and and Watt, uh, to see what that combination can do. But like I said, I, I really would want to see them uh, get a couple of goals in their final game, which is, should be a tough game um, set up for them too. Yep, and it's uh, coach versus his old assistant. Yep. So who, who gets the advantage there, Rory because he taught him everything, or Harrington because he came from the system? Well, I would say uh, Craig knows both teams, right? Uh, he should. So, so advantage, we'll see. maybe we'll we will see. All right, John, thanks again for burning the midnight oil with us. Uh, match day six in the books, early game, rain with a stoppage time goal from Bethany Balser, who was great coming in off the bench. Beat the Royals 1-0, and Sky Blue on goals from Paige Monahan and Naho Kawasumi beat the Dash 2-0. So everybody has scored. Everybody has a win except for the Thorns and Red Stars. We'll be back following Match Day 7. That's on Sunday for Rachel Krigger and John Halloran. I'm Dan Lawletta. You've been listening to the Equalizer Podcast.